Welcome to The Wildlife, a program that probes the mysteries of the animal world through interviews with scientists and other wildlife investigators. I'm Laurel Nemi, your host for The Wildlife, and also author of Animal Investigators, How the World's First Wildlife Forensics Lab is Solving Crimes and Saving Endangered Species. Today on The Wildlife, I'll talk about wildlife in New England with naturalist Mark Frazier. We'll also discuss some of the simple things that you can do to help wildlife wherever you live. Mark is the host and executive producer of Nature Walks with Mark Frazier, a conservation-based wildlife awareness program made for public television, cinema, and online audiences. He's a self-taught, lifelong naturalist and underwater videographer. He's also the executive director of the Mark Frazier Conservation Foundation, a new nonprofit working to raise awareness about the natural world through direct public education. He has spent a lifetime studying the forests and fauna and overall biological diversity from New England to Central America. He's also a public environmental educator at the Sherburne Nature Center in Tynesboro, Massachusetts. Mark also writes for several conservation blogs and hosts several websites. His films have aired on multiple media outlets as well as at museums and nature centers. You can see some of them on his YouTube channel, which is N-W-W-M-A-R-K, or at his website, naturewalkswithmark.org. When we spoke recently, I asked Mark what first got him interested in wildlife and nature. Well, it, it, it actually does go back to a little bit of my family story. My, my father and grandfather, they lived in the Adirondacks, and they, they almost predominantly in the forest, actually. There was a lot of kind of family history in New England, and I, I grew up on these fascinating stories of, of my dad telling me about how he was out with his father in the forest uh, surviving, looking for food. It was, you know, my father was born in the beginning of the Great Depression, and he used to joke about it that, you know, they, they didn't know there was a depression because they didn't have any money anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so so they, 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 they lived off the land. And, and what, what for me was so fascinating, there was just a stark contrast between what, what was being described of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s and today, and that, you know, in some ways, there's a lot more wildlife today, thanks to a lot of the conservation work that you can find in the Northeast. There's a lot more trees today than there was in, say, 1800 and 1850. So, you know, just that alone, you know, as a kid growing up looking around, and, you know, I remember them saying it was very difficult to find a deer back when he was a kid. It was very difficult for them to, you know, just to going through the forest. The, the carnivores are a very rare thing back then. And unfortunately, it was just we didn't have the kind of conservation smarts that we have today in place. Your grandfather is a Native American, is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Actually, my, my family on my, my, my dad's side, uh, my, my father always said we were part Mohawk, and he was actually raised in, in, in a, an adopted house in upstate New York uh, on a farm. Um, so, and then I, then I was brought up between New York and Massachusetts. I actually went to school in Massachusetts. Um, and I started at a young, young age going into the Adirondacks and trying to find all these places because he, he, was, he was kind of put up for adoption. My grandmother was killed in a horrible accident. Um, and, you know, the family was, of course, very poor. And the state came and took the kids, my, along with my father, and they put him in this, in this house. And, and so he was taken away from his dad, and then he later hooked up with him again and then spent many years living off the land with him. And it, it was at that time after he left that adoptive uh, adopted house that they were in, the farmhouse, that uh, those are re- really where the, the main kind of stories that I got as a kid that were so very fascinating, where he, he hooked back up with his dad. You know, those, those, those stories of the life 
back then of, of being in the Northeast and being in the Adirondacks and what that was like was such a fascinating thing for me. And then the, the contrast of being in Massachusetts, in the eastern Massachusetts, in this very fast-paced, crazy, highly populated area, from a, a naturalist perspective or a conservationist perspective, it really kind of set things in stone for me to really see the impact, ecologically, the impact that our society has on the environment. It sounds like that was an epiphany of sorts, and I'm wondering what it's meant to you. A lot of times, it's the subtle decisions that each of us make every day that have this huge impact overall collectively. And, and that's the most important thing that a lot of us, I think, forget is we always wait for some other group or agency or somebody to come and save the day when you're talking about the environment. But it's really about all of us because, you know, we all represent the problem you know, because we're using the natural resources, and therefore we all represent the solution, you know, by the choices that we make. We're going to be talking a lot about that, but I'm wondering if you could give us a few examples. How we shop, if we use canvas bags, I mean, there's so many things like that. There is a raw beauty in anybody that gets out and, you know, paddles along a creek or goes for a nature walk. We all have this built-in instinct of love of the natural world, and we take the time to explore it and appreciate it, then conservation, it, it, it becomes natural because you want to protect what you know and care about. So take me on a tour of some of these northern boreal forests. What kinds of wildlife can people find here? Oh, Maybe so- not find, but what kinds of wildlife live here? <laughs> well, well, you know, there's, there's, there's things that are, that are rare, rarely seen, let's say like a fisher, but you might hear them, right? And a fisher, for those who don't know, they're the second largest of the, of the musselidid family. Uh, they're like a large dark brown weasel. Um, they're a predator to things like porcupine and squirrel. Um, but, you know, when I was a kid, I was born in 1970, and, and when I was a kid, you'd never heard about a fisher. But now they've made a brilliant comeback. So, so they're out there again, and actually... Ironically, this very time of year between like January and February is when you'll, you'll actually start to see them because the young males go out to try to start the family and that kind of thing, and they're out romping around and, and because they contrast against the snow. I, almost every time I've seen them in the wild has been in the winter because of that. Oh, really? Um, yeah, and what kind so, of environment do they really like? Um, th- they like the forest. They're a boreal species. So they, they have curved, they're five toes if you ever see the prints in the snow, so it's something to look for, right? They, they're, their claws... Uh, will show, and you'll see uh, five toes on each side, and it's you know their their footprints are side by side. So when you see this kind of bounding in the snow with the five toes, then you know most likely it's a fisher. Uh, they 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 are brilliant climbers of trees. Uh, definitely a boreal species. They love to get up. They can chase a squirrel right out of a tree. It's incredible. Um, but you'll see them in the mixed forest, deciduous forest, and I'll see them right up into the old growth evergreens and that kind of place. So. Really, the Northeast is just a perfect place for their for their habitat. And how big are they, say, um, compared to a squirrel? They're about the size, I'd say, of a house cat. You could kind of size them up like that, so like a large house cat. They're in that kind of with a, with a weasel body shape, and and that's a great example of a carnivore uh, that we have here in the Northeast. And and you know, a lot of times when we're talking about wildlife, you know, there's things that you see. These days, fairly often, like if, you, if, you, if you're out dusk and dawn at the pre-cuspal times, seeing turkey or deer is fairly common, luckily, and I'm, and I'm thankful for that because there was a time when that wasn't the case. But with, with good conservation, that, that's how it is now. And many of us see them if you drive past a farmer's field or a meadow or that sort of thing, where you, where you can, just because you can simply see, you can't see into the forest as you drive by. And in the distance, you'll, you'll, you'll get that view, but also there... There are things like carnivores, like coyotes, 
and here in the Northeast, we have a species which is very, very unique. It's, it's more than double the size of a typical coyote like you'd find out west. And genetic studies done by uh, scientists like Dr. Jonathan Way have shown that they, in fact, do have uh, a hybrid with wolf, with the eastern wolf, or formerly like the red wolf. Um, and that's a, that's a wolf that gets to about, say, 60 pounds. So, so really what we have there is a carnivore that's filling that niche, that place where the wolf belongs. And in a healthy ecosystem, it is vital to have a carnivore. And a great example is if you look at Yellowstone, the reintroduction of wolves. They, they you know, back in the mid-'90s when they brought the wolves back, they really didn't know just how the fauna, how the, the ecology would change at the park. Once they brought them back, though, they realized some amazing things happened. Suddenly, trees started to grow that wouldn't normally grow. Of all things, it was because, you know, elk would just patiently graze because they weren't being hunted by wolves. They weren't, and it's not that the wolves take so many. They don't. It's actually not very many at all. It's psychological. It, you know, the fact that they're being predated would keep them on the move, and that would mean they would only graze a little bit in each spot and allow saplings a chance to grow. That stopped river erosion on the banks of the water, and now beavers could come back, which starts a pond, and then from that pond you get wood ducks and herons and that sort of thing. So the entire ecology benefited by introducing this one single carnivore. So here in the Northeast, we, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, of probably misrepresentation about the animal that's out there that's really a koi wolf, but it's really something to be thankful for. Um, and, and if you really look at the environment here, Considering the populations that we have, there are some beautiful examples of northern forest that we have in Vermont and New York State and Maine and Massachusetts, just incredible areas. So tell me more about the koi wolves. You know, how big are they? Well, the, you know, the, the, the males will get up to probably 50 pounds. There's, there's reports that are, you know, people say they're twice that size, but... It's, it's really because they're, they're very furry, especially during the, their colder months, right? And they get that winter fur like your dog will. Right. <laughs> and, so, they, so they look like they're gigantic, but they're kind of puffballs. And, and, and if they jumped in the river, you'd change your mind and say, oh, he's skinny. You know? And how tall are they? You know, they're, how... they're like a German shepherd. They're, 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 if, if you have an average-sized German shepherd, they're, they're close to that height, a little bit smaller, but close to that height. Not that width, and they're not going to have any body fat because you simply can't, you can't survive if you're heavy uh, in that type of where you have to chase your prey and that sort of thing. So they're a very lean species, so they, they look a lot bigger than they are. So in reality, you know, 50 pounds is a really, really big male. And I, I actually spent uh, a, a night tracking koi wolves with Dr. Way, filming them, and the largest male that we saw was just, just over 50 pounds. And he, he, was, he was a big boy. And, and, and he looked enormous, and, but, but that's it. It's just because of, you know, they, they look like that from all the fur that they have and that sort of thing. But, but really, they need to be a lean species in this environment. And there's a lot of science now that they're, they're kind of swaying because there was a time when they argued about what kind of wolf originally lived in the east and the northeast. What kind did live here? There's been a lot of interesting studies recently. Uh, I, I believe it was Defenders of Wildlife that did a study uh, for wolf reintroduction in the Northeast. And they found that, you know, that, that there was a couple of places, like uh, I think Maine had some, some habitat, but the Adirondacks had some habitat, where you had enough, you know, unbroken forest. But when they did this study, they started to realize that, you know, maybe it wasn't necessarily the gray wolf that lived in this habitat. Maybe it was the red wolf. 
now called the Eastern Wolf, and in Canada they call it the Eastern Canadian Wolf. What's the difference between the two? The gray wolf is this massive, big, you know, I'm chasing down a bison in an in a open prairie, this large animal. And then you have this, this smaller, sleeker, 60-pound eastern wolf that's it's going after white-tailed deer, and it's going after rabbits and small prey and that sort of thing. So it kind of, it's, it kind of makes sense. Not to say that there were or weren't gray wolves here. I think that, you know, the, the, the science is really kind of out there still trying to identify whether they were here, but certainly there was red wolves. And they actually have a taxidermy example of a red wolf that was unfortunately shot back in 18... 18- 50 or something that's in, the, in a museum in the Adirondacks. So that's a great example of, of, you know, something that shows, like, this is the animal that was here, that, that was the main carnivore uh, before they, they, they were hunted out. Have we seen any changes in the ecosystem as a result of koi wolves being in the area? Or haven't I, they been here long enough? How long have they really even been here? Well, they, well, they, they go back probably 80 years. And, and I'll tell you, you know, and they probably go back a lot before that, but I think the science is saying about 75 or 80 years genetically where they say they have some wolf influx and that sort of thing. And if, if you think about it, it kind of coincides with, you know, as the wolf, the wolf population in the Northeast was just basically hunted out. There, there was, it was, it was by design, unfortunately. There was, there was some misunderstanding about the importance of carnivores in the ecosystems, and laws were actually passed to try and exterminate them. What happened once they were gone? Um, and after they were gone, uh, it left it left this open void to which the coyote filled. And as the coyote filled that void, it suspected that they met with the red wolf, which is smaller. A gray wolf and a coyote won't mate together. A gray wolf will more likely kill a coyote, but the red wolf is right in the middle of the two species. So so you can have breeding. And and genetically, it seems that's that's what happened as they came across Canada and then down into the northeast. So are there any studies that document what's happened before and after? As far as the environment as a whole, you know, there, there was just an absolute lack of really good science that studied before and after. As a naturalist looking in the ecosystem, I say absolutely they're an important part here, and, and here's why. Let's say that you had no predators at all, and you have a bounty of small, you know, middle-sized fauna, you know, the raccoon and the skunks and the possums and that sort of thing. Some of those species are prone to sickness. You know, they, whether it, it could be rabies or there's just a ton of, of, of things, potential that's there naturally in the ecosystem. And when you have a carnivore, the carnivores are going to catch the animal that's the slowest or the weakest or the oldest. And, 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 they, and those types of studies have gone back for a long, long time. That, you know, there's a direct benefit there in the, in the overall health of the ecology because the carnivore's taken away the potentially sick animals. So... What we have today, you know, with the coils in our environment, has, has simply got to, to, to benefit. It, 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 and I, I'll tell you, I, I spend a lot of time in the forest, whether it's in the, in the conifer forest or the boreal forest in the northern Adirondacks or northern Vermont, but also down in, in uh, western Mass and, and, and even down to the ocean and some of the, you know, some of the, that type of, you know, the, the salt marsh environment. And we really do have some beautiful examples of wildlife that, that live in the Northeast. So ecologically, I think we're doing very well. And, and, and I think that they're a direct benefit. I don't think they're a harm. And there's, there's a lot of hype that they're harm. And there's a lot of, you know, organizations and whatnot that might, might put out, you know, media that says they're harmful. But when you look at the actual numbers, and there, are, there is data out there, scientists like Dr. Way actually 
collect this data and they extrapolate, for example, how many attacks on people, right? Because some people say, am I in danger from That was going to be my next question because a lot of people are scared of yeah. wolves. Right. And, 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 and the, re, the reality is when they, they look at the numbers that, first of all, the amount of fatalities recorded by coyotes and or koi wolves in recorded history is two fatalities. So, you know, if you look at how many people... That's in you know, recorded history. Not yeah, all the time. Yeah, 500 years or whatever of, of recorded history. That's it. And, and, you know, you would think by some of the, some of the media hype that gets out there that, that, that there's, there's horrible things going on, but it's, it's really just hype or, or special interest groups. In reality, that's, that's, they're just, it, there's no harm. If you hear uh, coivals howling in your backyard, you can go out there. They're, they're not going to bother with you. You know, those, those sad, rare things that do happen, it is much more dangerous to live next to a road like we all do. Are there things we can do to protect ourselves during those rare instances? When you're driving to work every day, there's rules that you follow, and it's the same with carnivorous wildlife. I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't take a, a newborn baby and leave, leave the baby in the forest. That would be crazy. It's just common sense. Um, they are certainly not looking to predate on people. Absolutely not. A mouse? Absolutely what about domestic pets? I, there, there is a, one danger that happens is domestic pets. And, and it's a very interesting thing, and this actually came up in the New York Times article about how there's hundreds of millions of songbirds every year that die from domestic cats, you know, that are left outside. So it works both ways. Not only are there hundreds of millions of songbirds that, that unfortunately die from the domestic cats, but there's something else that happens is the cats are in danger as are the koi wolves, by meeting each other. You see, if the koi wolf finds a cat at 2 o'clock in the morning, he's going to take it. I mean, it's absolutely. And what's the problem with that? The problem with that is because, unfortunately, the pet owner didn't bring the pet inside, as he or she should have, um, not only did the, the cat, unfortunately, meet the demise, but now there's that anger and that hatred of, of the so-called coyote, the, in reality, koi wolf, that happens from that because, you know, our pets are our family. I have pets. I love them to death. They're, they're, that's my family. But, you know, you, you have to practice common sense. And if you leave them outside, you're putting your pet in danger and you're putting the wildlife in danger because the retribution that happens when people are angry when they lose a pet. What can people do to prevent that? It's very simple steps. Very simple. To, like, don't leave your cat outside. It just, it, it doesn't go well. You know, it, it's, it's a predator but you're feeding it. So if you think about it, it's going out and it's killing animals, and it's, even though it's getting fed, it's a domestic species and it becomes invasive. So, so because of that, you know, that's one of those small, simple things. Simply leave your cat indoors it can make a huge difference helping wildlife. Are there other things you can do related to your pets? The other thing is if you leave, let's say that you have a dog and he's outside a lot during the day, and then you leave his dog dish out. Well, that's an attractant for wildlife, including koi wolves. And if you do things that attract wildlife to your doorstep and you have pets, you are kind of taking a risk unnecessarily. Not that, you know, the person necessarily is at risk, but the pet, you know, and just, just having them there. So, you know, it's just common sense. Are there differences between the backcountry and suburbia? If you talk to folks that live in the backcountry, this is all stuff that, you know, they've known since the dawn of time, because when you live in that environment, it kind of makes sense. But amazingly, it's suburbia where you run into most of the problems. Why? Because you have folks that simply don't understand wildlife or don't understand how an ecosystem really works. 
and there's a lot of fear. You know, they're scared of what's going to happen and what, what makes that sound at night. Nine times out of ten, it's a fox screaming in your backyard, and they make some really spooky sounds, but it's just a cute little fox is all it really is. <laughs> Which would <laughs> run away if you came Absolutely. Near it. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're, t- they're tiny, yeah. They're, so, but but that's, that's just it. It's all about education. You know, we're, we're fortunate because, you know, all of us here that live in the Northeast, I've done a lot of traveling, and this is the most beautiful place in the world. I really believe that to the marrow of my bones. I, of all the places I've been, and I'm talking Central America, Northern Canada, and everywhere else, I just find the Northeast, there, there's something magic about the forest and the brooks and, and the smells of balsam and sugar maple. There's something about this environment that's very unique, and, and, and that's something to be cherished. You shouldn't say how beautiful it is here because otherwise lots of people will come. When you think about that, the human population this year is hitting 7 billion people. Every year the population grows and the demand on natural resources grows, but those resources don't grow. So that means that our impact on the environment is greater every year. That means those those precious places, those those beautiful secret places in the forest that we all appreciate they're becoming endangered more so every single day. Every breath that you take, there's acres of forest that are decimated around the world, just in the United States alone, as a matter of fact. So protecting what we have left only becomes more important and more vital each and every day. Let's talk about songbirds. Tell me, what kind of songbirds do we have here in the Northeast? Oh, there's so many. I, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, really, it, there's, there's over 800 listed as migratory birds, but, you know, on average, 200 and something that'll pass through. What are some of the most interesting? You know, the eastern bluebird, for example. Now, there's, there's, a, there's an interesting bird. The eastern bluebird, it, it, it really depended, it was doing well back in the agricultural days because, for some reason, it likes to build its, it likes to it put its nest inside old fence posts. Because the height of the, you know, the post and rail fence post that the farmers would have since mm-hmm. way back, well, it was perfect for them, and they thrived. But as suburbia kind of took over and there was less and less farms, the, the number one impact of all species, and certainly for them, is habitat loss. So their habitat shrunk, and eastern bluebirds became more and more rare. And then there's something else that happens. See, they're an insectivorous bird species, meaning they, they you know, they need insects to survive. So... Well, you know, people often debate about global warming, but in the natural world, there's no debate. It's, it's happening all around us. And, and it's, to anybody studying the environment, it's commonplace. You can see it, and there's a m- many different ways you can see it. And one of them, unfortunately, is bird die-offs. Things can happen ecologically, like, for example, with eastern bluebirds, where they depend on insects, and if it's a little bit warm late into the season, into winter, they'll stay. They won't migrate because they're still eating. And then all of a sudden, a frost happens because it's January. And it was, you know, it was 50 degrees until all of a sudden, boom, this frost comes. And and now there's no more insects, or now there's no more food. And this happens with other songbird species too, yeah? Many different species. Cedar waxwings, for example. Stunning-looking bird. Um, But they run into a problem if their fruit is glazed over in a sheet of ice. You know, that to, to uh, songbirds is a very dangerous weather pattern. And that happens when the winters are too warm. So there's, there's things that we see in the environment that tell us about what the reality is. So, you know, uh, us humans, we always kind of debate back and forth. And, you know, eastern hemlocks is a great example. There's this little gray furry mite, interestingly enough called furry mite, that, that, that actually eats the hemlock. 
and until recently, it couldn't really get north of Connecticut, and it, and it really decimates the hemlock trees. But now it's right up through Massachusetts already, and each year it gets further and further north, and that's because the winters are more and more mild. It's the winters that hold it back. What can people do to help songbirds? Well, I'm glad you said that. There's, there's tons. And, and one of the most simple things is real simple. Don't use pesticides. There's never a good excuse. There are millions of songbirds that die every year from pesticides because they eat insects that are covered in poison. And now that article also mentions that they have no way of knowing how many birds actually die, that they, they know that there's tens of millions, but it's probably hundreds of millions because most of the birds fly away and or feed their chicks with those poisoned insects. So avoiding pesticides is critically important. Another thing, very simple, and I do this myself, is have a wildflower garden. And by a wildflower garden, I don't mean, you know, a lot of folks will confuse that with going to a garden center and buying wildflowers. Well, there's, there's, you have to be careful for invasive species, non-native plants, right? So sometimes when you buy wildflowers, if, the, if those wildflowers are from the other part of the country, well, they're, you're, you could be introducing non-native species. So for me, a wildflower garden means you simply don't mow a patch of your lawn, and Mother Nature will do the rest. And I have these beautiful, brilliant-looking patches of flowers, and now insects like bees, and not just the honeybee, which is from, you know, not the Italian honeybee, by the way, which is not native, but native bees, like the green metallic bee, and all these cool-looking things start to show up that you don't normally see, and those are food for songbirds. So by having a wildflower garden, not only are you helping the, the plants, the native plants that need to be there, you're also providing moisture and shade for species like, for example, newts or yellow-spotted salamanders that may walk and, and, and stay on a hot day and they'll stay in the moisture of that flower garden, but also the birds that eat the insects. And all you have to do is not mow. And then, and then in the fall, you could, you know, at the end of the season, then you mow it just so you don't grow saplings if you want to just have the, the wildflowers. And who likes to mow? To <laughs> Certainly not me. <laughs> it's, you know, it, it's the craziest thing, you know, a brush pile. You know, the importance of a brush pile, right? When, you know, if, if you're trimming trees in your yard or that sort of thing, and you have a brush pile, instead of shredding it down to mulch, you know, if, if you have a place for it, a simple pile of brush, that, that's a home. That actually provides a home for a ton of different species because it's shelter. And a lot of times that, that's what animals need, a place to get out of the weather or to be, you know, unseen so they don't have to worry about predation and things like that. So if you think about it now, any one of us who's flown on an airplane and looked down or looked at Google Maps or something, you can just see, you know, humans. We're everywhere, right? We've spread around the planet. We're certainly from sea to sea in the nation. Very rare are the places that are as green as Vermont, beautiful like Vermont. I was born there, by the way, very proud of that. And, you know, but that beautiful green patch is rare now. And what, what really exists is just large yards, you know, urban sprawl. And we have to start to think about ways to tie in this urban sprawl with helping habitat, with helping wildlife habitat. And it's very easy to do. The things we just talked about, the wildflower garden, the brush pile. See, we can create wildlife-friendly yards. And by doing that, by avoiding pesticides and having wildflowers and having brush piles and things like that, you know, maybe a source of water or that sort of thing, by doing that, you're, you're, you're instead of creating a big desert or void where wildlife struggles to get through, 
you create a safe zone for them. And the more of us that think like that, the more of us that do that, the better off we are. Because remember, we're part of a big collective. So each one of our decisions every day has a huge impact when you think of the big picture, and it really does matter the choices that each of us make individually. So to create a wildlife-friendly yard, what would I need to do? I can still mow part of it, but have part of it not mowed. Keep yeah, it, sure. Yeah, keep it, it, and there's logic. I mean, I mean, you know, folks are worried about it, especially if you live in a forested area. They're worried about if there's a forest fire in the summertime. And, you know, it depends on where you live. And sometimes there's zoning things, and as weird as that is, you know, I've, I've certainly get those notices in my past where people say, you have to mow. It's crazy when you think it, it flies in the face of reason because, in reality, that's one of the worst things for the environment. See, grass is very, it's, it's bad in a lot of ways. Of course, it's only one plant, right? And the other thing is, it, it just allows water just to kind of, you know, flow right off it into the street and then into the drain. And that water is required to get into, filter through the soil and get into the water table. And there's, you know, nature works like that. You know, the, the, the forest is something that develops over millions of years. Nature knows what she's doing. So for us to dramatically change the environment like that and to do so just because of how it looks, I think there's a better way to do it. And, you know, you, so if, let's say that you have a, a partially mowed and partially kind of wildish area of your yard. It's beautiful. You know, done in the right way, it can be, you know, just as stylish or, you know, interesting to look at as anywhere else. And, you know, it's not that, you know, you can't mow anywhere ever or that sort of thing. Just be a little cognizant of it. You know, think of it like, you know, in a, in a miniature way, when you're mowing your lawn, it's like being a logger. Do you want a clear cut? Or do you want to do selective cutting, which is better? And, and so think of your lawn like that. You know, you, in that miniature world, that's what you're doing. You're, you're going in there. Now you have to make a decision. Do I just destroy everything, right, because it's easy? Or maybe I leave a little patch. And, and when you leave a little patch like that, it's only less to mow. That's it. It's no more difficult than that. And the benefits are absolutely enormous. One of the benefits you were just talking about are to insects. And Tell me about some of the insects that we never think about. <laughs> oh, there, there was, you know, that, that is such a cool thing. There was, there was so many insects on this planet, it's humbling how many different species. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my word, and, and if you get a magnifying glass, here's a great example. I love the example of the milkweed because the milkweed represents, the plant represents a universe of insects, a, a literal universe. By that I mean it's like a whole planet. There are species that only live on the milkweed. There's the, the, the milkweed aphid. It's a cow, and it has a farmer, this little ant that actually milks the cow. And it, defend it, it, it will defend it from wolves, and the wolves in that environment are ladybugs. So, so you have this little tiny ecosystem living on this plant. There's the, long, the longhorn beetle, the milkweed longhorn beetle. There's, of course, the monarch, the caterpillar larvae that feeds on the milkweed. So there's, there's insects that are so specialized that they only live on this one plant. There's like the dogbane leaf beetle, right? There are, there are species that are that specialized. So if you think about that relationship, there's so many species of insects out there, and many of them represent either food for other species up, up the food web, um, or they have some pollinating benefit to the environment. All of them belong here. I mean, the native ones, certainly. All of them. I mean, you know, these are our neighbors on this planet, literally. Literally, just because they're smaller than us or don't see the world necessarily the same way we do, does that necessarily mean they don't have a right to survive? And, and I think they do. 
And I think that when anyone takes the time with a magnifying glass or a little bit of patience and goes into that little wildflower patch that they just created because they heard this radio show and decided it was a good idea, <laughs> when, when they do that, I promise that they will be absolutely floored, just stunned at the beauty and the diversity, ecological diversity that you'll find in that wildflower garden. And, and that's what it's all about. So you're helping that little universe. And that little universe is actually a connection all the way up the food web. So the many different species of insects that, that are out there, if, you know, if you've if you're ever been a birder and you go out and you, you know, most, most folks that are into birding, they might be able to name 20 or even 50, you know, bird species, mm-hmm. if you're really at it. Just imagine it. It's, it's impossible. There's so many. Nobody knows them all. There's, there's hundreds of thousands, millions of species so you get down and, you know, all of a sudden there's this, you know, assassin bug, and you look at him and, oh, this is amazing. And then there's this leaf cutter bug, and then you check him out, and then there's, you know, it just goes on and on, and it's just brilliant. And the more that we understand our wor- world, the more that we have a, a close relationship with the planet that we share, the more we're going to protect it. You see, it's all about that. How do we know when something's wrong when we don't know what it looks like when it's right? Right? How would you know if it's an invasive species of fish if you didn't know what the native species were to begin with? And that's the danger with the current generation of kids in, the, in this social media high-tech world is that they're not necessarily getting that anymore. You know, I, I know when I was a kid, I got that. That's what made me who I am today. And I see the kids today, and, you know, they, they, great access to information, great access to music. We need to, to give them great access to the outdoors. We need to give them access to their wild neighbors, like those insects and birds and mammals that we spoke about. It's critically important because they need to know that there's no such thing as an empty lot. You know, when a developer developer comes by and he says, well, that's an empty lot. No, it's not. That's a home to thousands of species, absolutely a myriad of life. And very few people take the time to appreciate exactly what that means. And that's why there's almost no conscience. There's, there's, no, there's no, you know, well, you're not hurting anything if you build a house in that empty lot. Well, sometimes you can be. Absolutely you can be. And, and to, to understand that and to appreciate that is going to be the difference between a healthy and a green future for all of us and one that none of us are going to enjoy. And it really depends on the choices that we make today. And the most important one is going to be to get to know the wildlife that we share the world with so we can appreciate what's happening to it. As you're talking, I'm reminded of the Dr. Seuss classic, you know, Horton Hears a Who, where you have this whole world on a tiny speck. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the, you know, the fascinating thing is it's real. Um, it, it really is like that, isn't it? It, it really is that, that dynamic, that the tiniest piece of, of grass, for example, is an entire ecosystem. What's your favorite insect? Oh, oh, there's a ton. You know, for a long time it was a, for a long time it was the praying mantis. Um, you know, I was a kid. I did kung fu as a kid, and you know, and I went, I went to Walum Kung Fu, and Walum Kung Fu is the praying mantis, the art of the praying mantis, and you know, the stance is the praying mantis. Um, but now I would say the cicada. Why? There, there's something about a bug that can wait 17 years to come out of the ground and sing. You know, just the thought of, I, I find that such a epic, kind of almost a mini-migration, right? Imagine its universe. For 17 years, it's, it's under the ground, subterranean. It's, it's, you know, getting sap off the roots of a tree or whatnot. Just, just 17 years is an off for a bug. 
It's that long of a time. And then all of a sudden, nobody is even sure how it decides, I'm going to go up and sing a song. And it, and it suddenly comes out of the, the ground. It molts. So it you know sheds its skin and climbs up, becoming this incredibly massive-looking thing. And beautiful species to some of us, to other people maybe not so much. And, <laughs> but it climbs to the top of a tree and it sings for a mate. I think that is the most stunning thing. You know, and then there's the, the donner dragonfly, the green donner. It migrates like birds, so it actually migrates south for the wintertime. Who knew? <laughs> you know, and then there's the snow flea, right, the snow flea. So to me, a snow flea is, is now that's got to be one of the coolest things out there because you, you're basically, you know, if you think of a bison on a prairie, right, it's this large herb, herbivore working in a herd. Well, if you ever walk through the forest in the wintertime, especially in evergreen forest, and you look down and see these little flecks of what looks like pepper, and then you realize it's a living organism. And if you look at it real close, it's these cute little things. They don't bite. You know, their namesake, snowfully, you think they might bite, but they don't. They're herbivores, just like the bison. And they live in little herds, just like buffalo, you know, bison. And, and they, they work their way through the forest floor in the snow, grazing on the algae and the green matter. Just imagine that. The thought of it, just, it's just epic. And, and I actually did a small film on them one time, and I used a really you know, great, you know, super zoom, 20-time optical zoom, and, and it was just brilliant to look at the species, you know, suddenly big, and you realize they're adorable. They're cute little guys. Just what do they look their, like? Oh, Aside they look from like, pepper <laughs> granules. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, they actually, they it's funny, they, they almost have kind of like a bee face, and with, with antennae, you know, on them, they're all black, um, and the, their whole body is kind of like maybe eight or nine ridges, but they're cute. I'm literally cute, and they have this amazing thing that they do. Like all, you know, the flea species are big jumpers, and they still have that. And what they do is, when they decide it's time to jump, they have this little thing that shoot, that kind kind of comes out of their butt, and then all of a sudden, boom! They 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 click this lever, and they if you think of that distance, it would be like me jumping over the Empire State Building, and they they bound, you know, great for such a tiny thing. It might go a foot or two. It's incredible, and. So here's this, here's this little bison living in the forest in this hidden little world. Most folks hardly ever recognize that they're even there. And there's so many examples of that. I, one time I was walking through a forest, and, and I found on a trail this large chrysalis or cocoon. And I thought, well, that's a bad spot. And, you know, I was going to put it off to the side, and it was a high-traffic area. So I said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to take it home. And I'll let it hatch, and then I'll bring it back to the forest after it hatches. And it turned out to be a Prometheus moth, which is this massive, huge, you know, I don't know, six or seven inch wingspan with what looks like giant eyeballs. It looks like an owl. And you, you think about that, and you, if, if, if you imagine this, looking at this, this moth from the distance through the trees, and suddenly you see these two huge eyeballs looking at you, right? And that's part of its, its trickery, Right stay away from me, I'm a big hoot owl or something. And, and you know, you, you see things like that in the natural world that are just breathtaking, stunning, let alone bioluminescence like we have with the fireflies at night. And there, there's so many examples that are just jaw-dropping. And that's the fascinating thing about the world we share with these other life forms. They're not at all boring. They're not at all disgusting. They're beautiful, brilliant species. And the myriad of life is so in-depth, nobody... Nobody, no organization, no person, no one knows just how much is out there. They still discover new species all the time. 
I mean, we, we had great footage of the surface of Mars before we had footage of a giant squid on our own planet. A 40 to 50 foot long animal, that big, we never got it on film. We were on Mars first. That says a lot. It says a lot about we have a lot to learn. And, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time studying indigenous cultures, you know, Iroquois cultures and things like that, and very close to the land, close to the earth. And I find with native peoples, they're, they're very well connected to the earth, connected to the land, and, you know, kind of being caretakers of the land. And I see that in our, you know, in, in the mixed kind of American society, I see that starting to come about, that wisdom. You know, because it's a young society, right? A few hundred years old, this current system. And I, I think it's just starting to, to kind of develop, where people are realizing how critically important it is to care for the natural world, how critically important it is to study the natural world. It's not an option of something that, you know, like wearing a pen. You know, people say, I'm green, and they wear a pen or a shirt. It's not like that. That's something different. That's a human condition thing. But in reality, studying the Earth is very different, right? You know, certain biologists will study a certain species. As a human being, study the planet, everything. The beauty of a single snowflake, just one single snowflake out there in the world, is absolutely breathtaking, and that's something in itself that, you know, if you just take the time to do, you'll be floored at just how amazing that is. So now take that to the next level and go look at insects or different species like that. And you can imagine, just imagine how many different things there are to explore right in your own backyard. It's not like you have to be on safari. And, you know, I, I find a lot with the, with the shows and the documentaries that are out there today, um, unfortunately, there's all this, you know, it's beautiful crocodiles and zebras and different species, but... You know what? We have beautiful things that live right in our backyard that most of us aren't even aware of. And there is nowhere on the planet Earth that matters to a society than the forest in your own backyard because you're there. You can help it. You know, we get on board with helping around the world, but really, if, if each of us around the planet considered caring for our own backyard, whether it be volunteering at a conservation commission or getting active in your community... Or, or just showing your children or any children, you know, public speaking, getting out there and being involved makes all the difference in the world. We have to pay attention. We, you know, we have to focus on the beauty of what's all around us because if we don't, it really is in jeopardy. So another range of animals that are ne- often neglected are salamanders. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> so I'd love oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's a big issue here in Vermont with uh, vernal pools. Absolutely. Talk a little bit about that. I know, actually, uh, there's been salamander crossings that have been in the news lately as yeah. useless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I don't think that they're useless, but <laughs> tell me <Yeah>. about them. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're not useless at all. In fact, they're critically important because access to that vernal pool is what it's all about. And, and, and you know, let's face it, because some folks, you know, if a listener out there doesn't really understand a vernal pool, in a nutshell, it's a temporary body of water with no fish. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of descriptions out there, but that's what it comes down to. If you're a baby salamander, for example, and you live in that environment, you don't want to be eaten by a fish, and those temporary bodies of water are safe because there's usually no fish, right? So you'll see salamanders and polywogs and things like that that are developing in that vernal pool, like wood frogs. And you'll sometimes in the forest you'll come upon this massive group of singing species, and all of a sudden there's all these wood frogs out there, and they need that environment. 
And well, why, why should we even care about salamanders? Well, uh, they're, they're absolutely critical for the, for the natural ecosystem. There's so many things. First of all, when you look at the world of a yellow-spotted salamander, you know, they're out in the, in the subfauna, in the, in the leaf litter, and they go out and they're, they're hunting and moving through. Now, these relationships that they have in their niche in the environment, that's something that happened over millions of years. It's not something that happened yesterday. The impact, the delicate impact of species on this planet is so complicated. There are so few people that have a hand, if any, that have a real handle on the impact. If you remove a, an animal from, a, from an environment, you, I don't think anybody really understands the ramification of what happens downstream in time. You know, you take this animal out, and this animal represented one niche, whether it was a food for other animals, whether, it, whether or not it was another species like the, a newt, like the F newt, and when it turns orange, all of a sudden and it's toxic and things don't eat it. But this, you know, that's another neighbor in our planet and something else that's critically important. And if you remove salamanders or any other species from the ecosystem, th- those ramifications, the changes that you've made could be very extremely bad, and development needs to consider that as well. For example, when you, when you see, like, they're putting up condos or they're, they're building a house, if they go and they look at a lot in August and they say, well, it's high and dry, right, but they haven't looked at it in April or May when it, was, when it, when it turns into a vernal pool, for example, then they have simply no idea what that change is going to make. And, you know, wildlife like us needs a home. And, and, and see, the thing is, for the most part, the change that we do, even though on a big picture it's happening extremely fast, when I say that I mean the impact that we're having on the environment, species that are dying. But in our lives, our lives are short. You know, if we live 80 years, let's say, in those 80 years of your, of your lifespan, it's very hard to appreciate change you know, in the life of a pine tree that's 350 years old, maybe, right? But it's very hard in a human life to appreciate just how much change. But as, as, we, as we get on in years and we look back to our childhood and we start to remember those brook trout we used to see in that stream or we, we remember those, those great little, you know, places in the forest that are now a Walmart or that sort of thing, as we see that happen more and more, you have to remember that that's happening everywhere at the same time. We have to hold on to what's left. There has to be a point where we put our foot down and say, it's enough. You know what? We, for some reason, we want to cut down trees and forests to build a house, and then the same day you can drive through countless towns in America and see abandoned buildings. And, and it flies in the face of reason to think that we would leave the abandoned buildings and clear them out and do nothing with them, and yet we will go destroy an entire forest. And, you know, it comes down to the, the almighty dollar, right? It's people get money for the timber. They get money. You know, it's a natural resource, meaning that people didn't have to invest any money into it. Is there hope? I believe that as a society, we're starting to come around. I'm starting to see, like, like I said in the beginning of our talk, things are changing now. Do you have some examples? I see, for example, Lowell, Massachusetts, right along the, the textile mills, the old giant brick mills. And if you Google that, I mean, these were back in the days of the textile, back before World War II. Uh-huh. And at that time, the river was dyed yellow or red or blue, depending on what color they were using that day. It was that bad before the Clean Water Act. 
thanks to folks like Marion Stoddard that worked towards creating the Clean Water Act, now there's eagles going up and down, and also DDT stopping that. Now I drive by the Merrimack, and I can actually see bald eagles flying up and down this river. It's incredible to think about. I mean, right in the middle of this urbanized environment. So, and, and as we talked about fishers, turkeys, and deer, and so we are seeing species make a comeback that are, that are actually doing very well. But the problem is, is we, we've gotten recently very lackadaisical. Why? I don't know if it's because we're catching up to this new social media society. I mean, this was a big change, let's face it. All of our lives have changed since, like, Facebook and Twitter. and It made that much of an impact sociologically to all of us. But now we have to, we have to kind of play catch-up. And there are certain principles and foundations in our way of life that I think have sat a little bit too long. For example, how we teach the kids about the natural world, how we show them to protect and preserve what we have. And I, I'm not seeing as much of that anymore. And, and that's why I do, like, naturewalkswithmark.org and things like that is I'm trying to get people to pay attention. And, and there are great people out there like yourself, Laurel, and many other people out there that, that are doing fantastic jobs. And, and I think it's, it's our responsibility. We, you know, we today are the caretakers of the earth right now. It's our job, not somebody else's. So as we get this word out and this communication out to folks and we start to, to kind of build alliances of people who care and grow that, growing good in the world and growing preservation in the world, then I think we're going to have a beautiful future. Tell me about some of the things that you're doing, the Nature Walks with Mark and also the, um, the films that you've done, because they're really fantastic films on species you've never heard of. <laughs> Thank you. I, well, <laughs> or you know, some I, you've heard of, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, 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 you know, the, the, the whole thing is about just what we talk, we're talking about is getting the word out. And, 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 you know, the Nature Walks with Mark films, that, that is one medium. That's one, one approach. I also do public speaking. I, you know, I, I go out and I do public nature walks. In fact, February 5th in Kingsborough, Mass, at the Nature Center, at the Sherbin Nature Center, I'm hosting a nature walk by snowshoes. I'm assuming that there's going to be snow that day. <laughs> but, but, you know, that, the idea is to get folks out. And with the films, what I try to do is, is just literally share how I feel and put it on film. Share the beauty of the species. And, and the importance of that, because we need that. You know, everybody's these days, it's, you know, doom and gloom, and, you know, really what's important are those beautiful species that we've been talking about. You know, the, the more I study the natural world, the more humbled I am to be a human being. Now, you've recently done a film about Lake Champlain. Can you tell me about that? It's incredible. It, it's, it, first of all, you know, here's this, here's this lake, you know, it's what is it, up to 10 miles wide and 120 miles long and up to 400 feet deep. But, you know, you go back in time, and I went to Alamont, and I looked at the fossils, and, and there's these, these you know, uh, gastropod fossils that look like mollusks, right, and these squids, squids that lived on the earth at a time before anything walked on land. And they lived in a giant inland sea where Lake Champlain is today, you know, four, five, six hundred million years ago. I mean, that is just mind-blowing to me that the natural world has been around that long and there's that much, you know, out there. So then I go diving in the lake, not knowing what to expect. I've drove by it a million times. You know, I'm, you know, from the area. I have a place in New York, and I'm always back and forth. And all of a sudden, 
when you know I've been a diver for 20 years, you know, and and you know when you look at water and you see the sheen on the top of the water, that's kind of like 2D. But mm-hmm. when you get under the water, it's 3D. If you know what I mean, you get the the, the depths at that level, and that extra dimension of of depth and detail, you never know what you're going to see. Well, when I went under that water, and all of a sudden this big, huge fish comes swimming right behind me, and I saw this. I, I had a bit, I had such a smile on my face that I started taking on water and coughing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was just, I was just floored. It was beautiful. It put a tear in my eye to see it. And and there was this freshwater drum fish, this very large, kind of big-headed species, very, very huge, huge fish. And he comes up and he's kind of curious about me, and then he boom, and then he fly, flies kind of past me and leans as he went by, and just, just a breathtaking moment in this, in this amazing, giant, leftover glacial lake. And that just absolutely fascinates me. And, and anybody that takes the time to appreciate it. And when you see those types of species, and you realize that, you know, now all of a sudden, the areas around the Vermont and New York side of Lake Champlain and Quebec and all that, when you, when you look at that, now it takes on a whole new existence. So it's not just the beauty of the osprey you see waiting to jump down on a fish down there, but now you can see and appreciate what's below. Your film on Lake Champlain, it's called Exploring the Depths of Lake Champlain? Yes, that, that should be out uh, by hopefully this summer, the 30-minute the, the version, and I'll probably have some small pieces for like Mountain Lake PBS. Um, and you can actually see, there's, there's one out on YouTube now, which is a dive on the horse ferry that was right outside of Burlington Bay. What was that like? That was so cool. There was, there was all kinds of fish and just, you know, that, that whole world down there. And also I get to see the invasive mussels uh, that, that are in the lake now and that sort of thing too. And, um, but just a breathtaking place. Oh, I was just absolutely amazed by it. And that, then it kind of ties in the entire region. It, 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 that is a gem. It is a gem for the world, and there's no wonder they want to. They made it a world heritage site for Lake Champlain because it belongs as one. I mean, it is just a spectacular place, and we need to cherish that. You know, those spiny soft-shell turtles that live up in northern Vermont. We need to protect those folks. I mean, you know, there's not many of them, and and in the sturgeon, you know, there's so many species that are that are out there, and and it's up to us to put our foot down, starting with our own homes and our own yards. And going as far as perhaps simply, you know, whether, whether you go to a museum like the Echo Center or, or, you, or you get out and you snorkel or, or even if you're not a diver, if you talk to biologists that are out there studying and you learn about what lives there, it's a breathtaking thing. And all conservation, 100% of conservation starts with caring. It's the most important thing. And there's, I, I often tell folks that there's not one single outfit, agency, group, network, None of that. It's all about the individual caring, having empathy. And you, you build that by simply taking the time to appreciate what's there. And if people want to follow some of your adventures, where could they go? Um, if, if you ever want to read up on, on other adventures or things, on you know the films I put on YouTube, on NWW Mark, on a YouTube channel, or naturewalkswithmark.org is my website. And I try to post from time to time if anything that's going on or any nature business or that sort of thing. But I thank you very much for, for getting the word out to the public about the natural world. It's, it's such an important thing, so thank you. Well, I really appreciate your taking the time to talk with me today. Oh, it's an honor, absolutely. I hope you enjoyed that conversation about wildlife in New England and some of the simple things you can do to help wildlife wherever you live with naturalist Mark Frazier. Edited transcripts of selected programs are available on my website, laurelneamy.com, 
and also on mongabay.com. That's M-O-N-G-A-B-A-Y.com. You can also find archived episodes of The Wildlife on iTunes, at my website, laurelneemey.com, and at laurelneemey.podbean.com. You can stream The Wildlife Live at theradiator.org every Monday from 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The Wildlife can also be heard on the Animal Wise Radio Network, which is available nationally and internationally, and is broadcast to any mobile internet device via Live 365, a 24-7 radio network. Of course, if you have any comments about this show or ideas for future ones, you can email me at laurel at laurelneemey.com. The Wildlife is generously underwritten by the Lake Champlain Land Trust, a nonprofit organization permanently conserving the lands, lakeshore, critical wildlife habitats, and natural areas of Lake Champlain. More information is available online at lclt.org. This has been The Wildlife. I'm your host, Laurel Neamey, and you're listening to The Radiator, 105.9 FM, WOMMLP in Burlington, Vermont. <laughs>